Well, if you would, remain standing and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We will continue our study, our exposition of this text. Let me open this up with prayer, and then we'll read from verse 18 and following. Let's pray together. Now, blessed Lord, we do come and ask for enlightenment. Come and instruct us. Lord, lead each and every one of us, Lord, to understand this truth, this text, Lord, the principles that the goodness of man alone is not good enough for eternal life. Help us, O oh Lord, to grasp the force of the text, to examine ourselves. Give us the grace. Give us, the Lord, the wherewithal. Give us the ability, the discernment, Lord, to examine our lives, our lifestyles, our convictions, Lord, to lay ourselves open before you, Lord, as your word cuts through bone and marrow, motives and intentions. Come and glorify your name, Humble the sinner, Lord, exalt, and strengthen the saint. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. And beloved, I want to begin reading at verse 18. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. And do not bear false witness and honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich and Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. I'm looking at the bulletin and it says part four. I guess that is correct. I thought we were maybe on part five or six. I have lost my way. I, it doesn't, uh, I have lost how many times we have examined and looked at this text. And there's still a few more sermons that I wish to bring out of this text for your edification. Well, brothers and sisters, you see the title of this morning's sermon is Leading Good People to Jesus. And it's, well, it's maintaining a consistent theme that we started in the very beginning when 
that first initial sermon that was titled, or at least in my mind was titled, that goodness is not good enough. When goodness is not good enough, I still maintain, and the more I examine this text, the more I look at it, the more I pray over it, the more I look at myself in it, I still think that this is a text of Scripture that all of God's people need to really take to heart. I mean, obviously, all of Scripture we take to heart. Some we take more to heart. Some Scriptures we need to take more to heart. And in our day and time, when we have this goodness that, in my estimation, is being passed off for Christianity without Jesus, that's a problem. There seems to be a conflation of things that are good versus things that are of grace and good. And those two are not the same. Now, we're going to look at this text, and the, the verse, believe it or not, we are making progress in the text. The verse that we're going to focus on or that I'm going to bring to your attention and spend time in is verse 22. Verse 22 is Jesus' response to the rich young ruler's response to him. This is sort of that last engagement, if you will, in in this encounter. But there's an element of this interaction that I want to bring to your attention from the Gospel of Mark that Luke leaves out. And it's not detrimental to Luke in and of itself, in its essence, because what Luke gives us perfectly fits with the context of the chapter. Luke is addressing self-righteousness. Luke is really hammering the need for personal justification, the uh, abandoning of oneself, dying to oneself, and turning to Jesus and following him. That's the intention of Luke, and he does it perfectly. But there is just one one tiny comment that Mark adds that I want to bring to your attention. Turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. Look at verse 21. Looking at him, this is Jesus looking at the rich young ruler. You can see he's making eye contact with him. This is personal interaction. Jesus has given him his full attention. Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go sell all you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. You can see that Luke, that I mean that Mark adds in this interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler that Jesus felt love for him. Now, I have chosen to highlight that part for, well, various reasons. One, I want to address the statement itself. But I also want to address some social norms 
that I think are misleading, dangerous, and that has infiltrated the hearts and minds of God's people. Now, let me go ahead and address this idea of social norms. And I'm, I know I'm going to have to jump ahead a little bit. The scriptures record that Jesus felt love for the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, he, he's young. He's got youth on his side. He's wealthy, a person of great means, abilities, if you will, able to accomplish much because he's wealthy. And he's also powerful. He's, he's an authority figure. He has, he has power at his disposal. He can, he can make certain determinations that would need to be, well, upheld. And yet Jesus is telling him that he is lacking what it really takes to get to, to heaven. But yet the scriptures record that Jesus felt love for him. Now, this does seem to cause some of God's people to stumble, particularly those people that say, well, God doesn't love any unregenerate person, that the only people God loves are the regenerate, the church. Well, is that true? Is that the case? And we know there's passages in the Bible that talks about how God does hate the sinner. Well, we're not denying that. That exists, that's there. You have to contend with the text or those texts. But here we have a text that clearly indicates that here's a person that's unregenerate and Jesus loved him. So what are we to do with this? Well, I think in keeping with the mindset of one Westminster divine who preached a series of sermons on this text of Scripture, he said, well, it's, it's hardly the case that Jesus is lo- loves what is not right about the young man. His greed, his hypocrisy. Now, those things exist within him, but they're not obvious. They're not, they're not necessarily evident in one sense. He says it's not that Jesus loved him for all that he was, but that Jesus recognized his sincerity as we had already preached, have we not? That what? One of the things I brought out from the text itself and how the text supports the idea that the rich young ruler comes and and he comes sincerely to Christ asking a very valid and important question. And Jesus recognizes his sincerity. And he addresses him and deals with him based on that sincerity, that outwardness, if you will, that moral goodness, which the theologian points out was to be commended. I believe I've implied it, if not implicitly stated it, but I'll state it again. Brothers and sisters, if if men are not going to be regenerated, we want them to be good. Right? If your neighbor's not going to be regenerated, you most certainly want them to be good. Right? And we're going to spend some time addressing this goodness. 
because we don't need to fall into this trap that so many have fallen into that, well, good people are by necessity Christians. This young man was not a believer. And in fact, he walks away from the opportunity to, to well, follow Jesus. There are some social norms that I want to just highlight here in talking about common goodness. And that's what we're addressing here. There is a common and there is an, a moral goodness that truly exists in men based upon God as creator. And I, I've made this comment in various ways many times through in, the, in this series. And we don't need to conflate that with what we might call spiritually good. That goodness that flows from God's gr sovereign grace, saving grace, those, those are not the same. They have different masters, right? Men can be good for many reasons, and we're going to look at some of those in a little bit. And yet we see here, I think the, the, there are two points that I'm going to emphasize in this morning's sermon and maybe next week, and that is this. Number one, Jesus teaches us that we must appreciate that which is naturally or commonly good. We are to appreciate it. We are to respect it. Number two, that we must never conflate natural goodness with spiritual grace, but we must call good people to Christ. Interestingly enough, when we start talking about evangelism in most Christian circles, where do we, where do, where does our mind take us to the down and out? To the alleys in the, 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 the back of the building. And yet, this text teaches us that good men, women, must be led to Jesus that there is a gospel imperative to both the down and out, what we might call the rabble of society. You know, the scriptures talk about those who are so morally deplete, disgusting. I know that's a word we don't like talking about. It's not socially acceptable. But there are people that we are to segregate from because they are so morally reprehensible that we do not want them to infect us and those around us, and they're dangerous. Just like those who are spiritual heretics are dangerous, and we should separate from them as well. But let me address this social norm that I find permeating through the people of God in conversation, and I've heard it from many professing Christians, and that's this this, there's a, a, a modern day, uh, I don't know if you'd call it a proverb or whatever, but it's like, you do you. You do you. And it seems to gravitate with many people. The idea behind the statement is, 
You are not to worry about anyone else. You are to express yourself however you want to, whenever you want to, and let everything else just fall by the wayside, and, and whether it's immodest or whatever the case may be. And when immodesty doesn't just mean dress. You can have immodest behavior in being riotous. That's immodest, loud, verbose, vulgar. That's immodesty. Social immodesty. And it's this idea that as it's taken root, it permeates even among the church. And it's like, listen, I don't care what people think about me. You should. You should care. And much of what we're seeing taking place in the demise of the United States is this idea, you do you, without what we might call social manners. A social, social manners are nothing more than a common covenant that we have with one another to be respectful, kind, helpful, useful. And, of course, that relates into degrees based upon the closeness of the relationship. But, beloved, Jesus is teaching us here that in his respect of this common goodness that this young man possessed, that we, too, number one, ought to respect common goodness when we encounter it and recognize it and thus a deal with them accordingly but that we also ought to teach social manners, that we ought to teach that we should have a concern about the way we are perceived, about our public actions, about the things we say in public, and so on and so forth. Now, again, we live in a self-serving, self-indulgent, me, myself, and I culture. I understand that. Man is his own God, so to speak. And this is rooted in that. I understand that. And yet, but it's unbecoming of Christians to accept such philosophy. It's an unbecoming of a Christian to accept this idea that what I say or what I do just because I want to say it, just because I want to do it, ought to be, well, motivation enough and to give me the right to do it. We ought to put to death such ideas and to understand there's a time and place for everything. There is certainly a time and place to speak out. There's certainly a time and place to do th certain things. There's certainly a time and place right, to take certain stands and to have certain actions and to say certain things, no doubt about that. But, beloved, this idea, this concept that you just do you, it's unbiblical, it's ungodly, and it's certainly, it's certainly not Christian, and it's beneath the Christian to live that way. It's sinful. Now, there are... There are many motivations, beloved, on why people are good. And we're going to look at some of those. We're going to recognize some of these things, and it won't be exhausted by any means, but at the same time, we need to recognize that it does exist. And 
and that there is a distinction between that, that spiritual grace goodness that flows out of the presence of the Holy Spirit in someone that has had their eyes and ears opened up to the word of God and versus those who have the law of God written on their heart as obscure as it is, yet clear enough to do what? To be mannerly. To be mannerly. And I don't think it's, it's accidental that Jesus uses the second table of the law in interacting with the rich young ruler of how you love your neighbor as yourself. And he is under the impression that he has done those things. And now I've already talked about his ignorance of the law and whatnot. You can go back and listen to those sermons. I don't want to get sidetracked with that this morning. But some, some of you may be thinking, well, Pastor, what are you going to do with Romans 3? Well, beloved, Romans 3 doesn't contradict anything that I've said. What are you talking about, Pastor? It's the text Paul the apostle said, there is none good, no, not one. What are you saying? Beloved, I'm saying we don't conflate what has been condemned in the covenant of works, that all men experience this condemnation and unable to do any spiritual good, unable to, what, inherit eternal life by their actions, by their thoughts, by their deeds whatsoever. What does Romans 3 actually do? It condemns all men in the covenant of works as being guilty before God. It doesn't address man's common goodness. Paul is talking about that spiritual apostasy that we have in Adam from the very beginning of the world. He's not addressing the law written on the heart. He already does that in Romans 2. And we've looked at it, but let's look at it again. Look at Romans 2. And, and, of course, Paul's going back and forth here. And, and he's talking about those who have the law and those who, who don't have the law and how those who don't have the law find themselves more, what, lawful than those without the law. And he, here's what he says in verse 12. Or let's just look at verse 14 to save time. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. These not having the law are a law unto themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their consciences bearing witness and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them. That's the point. Okay, on judgment day, the one who had the Bible the one who sat up under the preaching of the gospel, who set, it, uh, set their days in a Christian church. And they stand before God and they never put their faith in Jesus Christ. The one that never had the Bible performed good deeds, baked their neighbor cookies, watched over their property. Paul is saying there's a distinction here. 
neither one go to heaven based on their works, but which one is more justified? The one who, well, obeyed instinctively. I shouldn't treat my wife this way. I shouldn't treat my husband this way. I shouldn't treat my sons and daughters this way. I should not steal from my employer. And Paul's recognizing this. Where does it come from? He said, because it's written instinctively on their consciences. And yet they don't have the, quote, quote, published moral law like the Jews did. They perform it instinctively, he writes. And so we need to make sure we don't conflate the two, that we keep them separate, that we understand it. And that we deal with it accordingly and not confuse the two. Now, one theologian said this about the love of God toward the rich young ruler. He said it's possible that there was really two motivations or at least Jesus' love flowing in two veins. One was respect for goodness. That even the common goodness is good. It's good to to do outward deeds. It's good to be useful. It's good to serve one another. That's a good thing. And it ought to be respected. But then, oh, he said this, and it's really, really pierced my own heart. He says, but also this love from Jesus flows out of pity. So there's respect and pity. What what could have possibly been the pity portion? The theologian goes on, he says, how could a person with so much do so little with it? That he had youth, he had power, influence, he had means, And yet, ultimately, he does very little with what God had blessed him with. Now, brothers and sisters, in context, we can all certainly examine ourselves in light of that. All of that which God has granted and given to you and blessed you with, what are you doing with it? It's worthy of our attention for sure. So we're looking and we're looking at, we've sort of recognized the social standards, the social misleading constructs that are out there. And we as Christians need to isolate ourselves. We need to, well, insulate ourselves from these philosophies because that's what they are. But now let's look at those things that cause men to be good without Jesus. Well, they are valid, but let's look at them. Number one, temperament. Well, we're all different. Some of us are very active. We're ready to work. We're ready to do something. We're ready to put our hands on something. We're ready. You know, this is the child that won't sit still. Ready to go. Not good on listening, but ready to do something. They're workers. And then there's the very passive person. Very shy. 
very reluctant to do anything for the sake of offending someone or failure. Now, both of these have their place. I mean, both of these can obviously do good things, but yet, beloved, even our temperament, if, if, we're, if we're geared toward diligence, working, we may not be so apt to carouse. We may not be the one that is, you know, hitting the nightlife. We may, may not be that person because of our constitution, because of our temperament. We're not out carousing. We're not out in the nightlife. We're not wasting our money. We're putting our hands to a career, to, to skill sets and to savings and those types of things that, that build generational wealth or all those. I mean, but you can see, and this is what one theologian said, weeds kill weeds. Certain sins kill other certain sins. And even though this is still a form of idolatry, their participation in it put to death these other sins. It doesn't make them, well, it doesn't make them gracious as instruments of God's grace. It's just their temperament are these things. All of our children have different temperaments. And they have to be dealt with accordingly, according to their temperament. And yet their temperament are going to lend itself to certain sins and avoid certain sins. That's the point. But temperament is a true cause. I'll give you an example. I mean, we live in an age of the worship of man. And I see it all the time, I see it weekly actually, where there's these great movements of health and, you know, um, exercise and all of these things. Nothing wrong with any of that in itself for good reasons. But when they are a means unto themselves, so to speak, is you can spend your time in the gym because you what? Worship your looks. That would be very sinful. But it would keep you out of other sins, wouldn't it? Sure it would. Someone who's worried about the way they look and the way their body composition is and they got to work out seven days a week are not the ones that's going to be out carousing. I mean, it's going to keep them from certain sins. I mean, it, maybe it's for the sense, oh, I just want to live longer. I don't have time to serve my neighbor. I don't have time to participate in my church. I don't have time to do these other things. I'm more concerned about living longer. And so all they do is worship themselves by their, well, the maintenance and taking care of themselves. And we can see how that would keep you from certain sins, but it would, even though that becomes a sin and an idol in and of itself, the God of Adonis, how we look, how long we live. So temperament is a valid reason. Lazy people are going to be more apt to certain sins than others. We talked about the very active person. We talked about the very passive person, the lazy person. The lazy person probably ain't going to pull a muscle. 
probably ain't going to get out there and hurt themselves because they're going to be less apt to really do anything. They really want to be passive in life altogether. They're the ones that have to be told what to do every time versus the one that says, hey, what can I do? How can I help? Thomas Manton goes on and he says, look, this is part two of this temperament idea. He says, the increase of one sin will cause the decrease of another. Look at the rich young ruler. Look at the things he avoided. Look at the commandments he kept. I'm sure the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, kept him from what? Mingling with other people's wives. Putting himself in a situation at a party for flirtation. Being the recipient of flirtation. Acting like he enjoyed it when he shouldn't. What about murder? Trying to live at peace outwardly with his neighbors. I mean, these things, beloved. I mean, Manton is absolutely correct, and it's a great counseling point. The increase of one sin will, well, cause others to decrease. And that's where he says, Weeds choke out the weeds. Take Judas, for example. Remember the humbled woman washing Jesus' feet with her hair and perfume? Do you remember how Judas got upset? You remember? He said, This is wasteful. We could sell this expensive perfume and feed the poor. Interesting how his greed, the sin of greed, wanted to move him to be what? Frugal. Wanted to keep him from being wasteful and indulgent. Because that's, you know, Sometimes we, what do we see these icons on TV, right? These, these, cultural, uh, these cultural gods that all the young people and, and the simple-minded worship is the, the lavishness of, of just throwing money around like it's nothing. Disposable cultures, you know, just throwing cars away, buying them up or whatever the case may be. The indulgence is worshiped. And yet we can see how Judas, well, Judas, his greed wanted to keep him from being indulgent. What about Herod? You know, the one who had John the Baptist beheaded? Well, you know, he used to listen to John the Baptist preach. And the, 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 the scriptures tell us that he enjoyed John the Baptist's preaching until until John the Baptist put his finger on his life. And then what happened? I mean, he, and, and he was still, you know, he was still not going to touch this prophet. But what moved him to have John the Baptist beheaded? His wife. His wife who manipulated her daughter, who danced provocatively, in this feast, this party they had, 
so much so that he's under the influence of the wine and the peer pressure. Let me give you whatever you ask for. Mama, what should I ask for? Ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. She does. The text tells us that he felt peer pressure. I have to maintain an image. I've got to maintain my image. So go behead John the Baptist. An image is a part of what? Well, social construct. Or good or bad. It's something we talked about a moment ago. Another aspect of social goodness that's important, that's overlooked, minimized. Well, it's not overlooked by the liberals. The liberals are far more understanding of education and the power of education than the conservatives. And that's education and discipline has a direct effect upon social goodness. The liberals have known for decades and uh, centuries that what? I don't need the present generation. I just need the young generation. And in a generation, I'll have the world through education. I can mold and shape the minds and hearts of the next generation through education. Yet education done rightly and considered in its proper place is a great motivation for social goodness and moral goodness. Proverbs 22, verse 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Now that works for both, right? I mean, not just the regenerate, as Hebrews 12 talks about, if you are my sons and daughters, you will be disciplined by me. I will discipline you as a son and daughter of the living God. If I don't discipline you, then you're not my child. That's in a spiritual sense. The trials that come into our life designed for us by God to train us up in grace. (laughs) Just as physically, the spiritual world connected to the physical world, that we train up our children And we correct them along the way so that the foolishness portion gets pushed aside and the virtuous portion, right, the good portion rises to the top. That's why we teach them their letters. That's why we teach them to read. That's why we teach them, you know, uh, we teach them morals through stories and Hey, including the Bible, I'm not foregoing that, but I'm talking about even just common nursery rhymes and songs. What's the whole point of that? Where did that culture come from? It came from families needing to educate their children and raise them up in common goodness. But, of course, not to stay there and not to remain there because you have to lead good people to Jesus. We seem to be waffling. We seem to, it's one or the other. While the world blows up and burns all around us, we're all sitting back going, well, they're depraved. They can do no other. And we have forgotten the world God created and that this is his world. And when he made it in the beginning, he said, it is good. Education. 
brothers and sisters, outward constraints can have a true value even among the ungodly. Think about Pharaoh. In Egypt, when the Israelites were in Egypt, when was Pharaoh at his best? When the plagues were there. Pharaoh was at his best. What would happen when the, when the plagues would come? And he began to suffer under them. And his, his nation began to suffer. God is the living God. Who can, no one can come against God. We must serve him. He was at his best, even though he was unregenerate, when he was under judgment. He's not the only one. I mean, I just talked about Herod. The fear of penalty, beloved, is a great motivation to do good. But what happens when you take that away? Which brings me to my last, at least my last point in this portion, which is, well, civics, politics, civil government. What does Romans 13, 4 talk about? That the part of the use of government is to constrain evil and to promote good. Certainly talking about outwardly if not leading to inwardly, not possessing eternal life by any means, but understanding that there is a social compact among men to love each other as themselves. That is written on their hearts. It's written on your heart. It's written on my heart. And grace accentuates it. Grace highlights it, waters it, flourishes, causes it to bear fruit. But even in the unregenerate, it's there even though you'll never live up to its fullness. It's there. So it brings me to our second point this morning. Good people must be led to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning and you've fallen under some conviction, the conflation of the two. I implore you as the preacher, the pastor here, as God's servant, do not rest in your goodness as worthy of eternal life. Don't. Don't rest in your social manners. Don't rest in your yes ma'am and no ma'am. And I think you ought to say those things. Don't rest in your willingness to be useful. Don't rest in your willingness to guard your tongue, to speak peacefully, to speak accurately, to speak in a way that promotes the truth. Don't rest in it. Do it, but don't rest in it. There's a difference. Beloved, come to recognize that we ought to teach the gospel to good people and for them to recognize that they must abandon or at least move beyond that goodness and receive that grace of God that makes their goodness beautiful. Beautiful. The way Thomas Manton put it, 
was poetic, and I didn't write it down for the sake of just uh, pondering it and thinking about it. But he said this. He said, where the goodness of man is high, God's grace is higher. And then he went on to equate manners. Social manners is like, well, it's like being in elementary school and graduating to the university. Meaning grace is far superior. Your life seasoned with God's saving grace, beloved, makes your morality a superior morality. Not not I'm talking about other men. I'm talking about in your life, in your heart, that you see the virtues of it flowing out of the goodness and kindness and grace of God in your life, and you see how he has built you up, that you are unworthy of these things, and now you have them because God has been gracious to you. He has had mercy upon you, and now you truly recognized like the rich young ruler I was completely destitute I was lost but now I'm found beloved listen to me listen to what Jesus says now again we're talking about how Jesus loved him and notice how Jesus loved him in verse 22 he said to him One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. That's the gospel invitation. That's the call to repentance. Jesus is not leaving this good man where he is. He's saying, if you want eternal life, if you truly want what your heart is seeking, then you must repent of your sins. Generally, we know, beloved, we have to confess our sins, but this is even particular. Jesus is telling him, here's what repentance looks like in your life, young man. You got to deal with this idolatry. You have to deal with this trust in your riches. So repentance for you is go sell all that you have. Now give it to the poor. These commandments that you have professed to have kept from your childhood all relate to the love of thy neighbor. Sell what you have, go give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And you'll have eternal life. Die to self. Pick up my cross and come follow me. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to end with this. We all have particular things we ought to repent of that are common to us, just like this young man had. And there is this general repentance, isn't there? There's this general acknowledgement, I'm a sinner. I sin, I tell lies, I cheat. I do things behind others' back. It's sinful. 
and they ought to be confessed. But beloved, we all have idols we have to kill to follow Jesus. We all have to put to death the idols in our heart. And we have to pick up the cross of Christ and follow him. Now that means that just as Jesus was crucified for our sins, that we too, when we pick up our cross, it's the sign of crucifixion. It's the sign that I have to die to myself. As Paul said in Galatians 2, that I no longer live, but the life I now live, I live in the body by faith in Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's the life I'm living. I count it all rubbish. All the virtue of my past, all the goodness of my past, I count it all but trash compared to the riches I now see and have in Christ. You got to lead good people to Jesus. And you have to teach them that they cannot rest in their own goodness and they'll never get to heaven that way that they must learn to die to their idolatry. They have them. They have these gods. They have constructed these gods in their heart. Whether they see it, whether they know it, that is not, that's not relevant. They have them, and we must address those gods, and we must remind them that they have to die to those idols and pick up the cross of Christ and follow him. Now, the rich young ruler was not willing to do that. But he got the message. How do we know? How do we know he got the message? Because verse 23 tells us that when he had heard these things, he became very sad. He became sad that he was not going to possess that eternal life he sought after. He wasn't going to because he was not willing to repent generally or particularly of his sins. The idols of his heart were more important than Jesus. This truth that is evident here, beloved, still exists in all of us. It's the reality that all men, all good men have to face the idols of their own. Is it the idol of longevity of life, the appearance of peer pressure? I mean, you know, to have good things in life. To All of these things may be good and in, a, in their place, but never for an ends unto themselves, never for the, the end being themselves. That's idolatry. Beloved, if you're here this morning, and you realize that you have never turned to Jesus Christ and repented of your sins particularly, you can. I implore you to do so right where you're sitting. Confess your sins before Christ, and he will forgive you of your sins. He will forgive your idolatry, and he'll come. He'll send his spirit into your life to occupy your heart and to shape your life, to fill your mind with truth and light, and to guide your feet in the path that you walk on. He will come and lead you in the paths of righteousness and truth, but you have to pick up his cross, and you have to follow him. And I pray that you will. Let's pray.
Now, gracious Father, we have, there could be so many other things that we could have brought into this morning's message. And yet, Lord, we're still pierced to the heart. We're still confronted by the truth of your word, Lord. How this young man sincerely believed that his goodness meant something, that it it gained him something in relationship to eternal life. And yet Jesus had to, Lord, destroy that idol, his greed, that lust, Lord, that existed in his heart that he possibly had never seen before. But Jesus exposed it. He showed him who he was and what he needed to do, what repentance looked like for him. And Father, you have come to us. Lord, I pray that we too have seen that and done that, Lord. And, and Lord, that we, have, we are not resting in our own goodness, but only trusting in that grace that flows from a saving Savior, from a gracious God, from a good God, a Lord, a God that loves his children uniquely and, Lord, in a special way. Lord, not like the common goodness that's out there, but, Lord, there is a special love that you have placed upon your children. And, Lord, you are working all things together, Lord, for our good in our lives every day, every day. You are disciplining us. You are shaping us. You are molding us. Lord, you are weaning us off of these social constructs, Lord, these these vain ideas, Lord, that you be you movement, all of these things, Lord, that we ought to reject because your word is, well, truth. Help us, O God, to understand the place for common goodness and morality in our social life and help us to promote it. But, Lord, let us never be guilty of allowing some to rest in it for eternal life. We pray this in Christ's name.